listening to our New Chapel podcast. We're for people to connect with God and be raised to new life in Christ. Be sure to connect with us at newchapel.com and on social media to stay up to date on everything happening here at New Chapel. Well, good morning, gang. Hey, welcome to part three, our final part of our series, Good God. If you have anything to take notes with, now's the time. That little weekly, pull that out. On the back side of that is some space for you to take notes. You're going to want that today. I believe you're going to really receive something specific for you from God. If you have your Bibles, would you open with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. We've been talking about the goodness of God. If you've missed any part of this, by the way, you can go to newchapel.com watch and watch the first two messages in this series or download our podcast onto your phone. Be sure to subscribe to that. It'll pop up every Sunday night, Monday morning, so you can track with everything that God is doing. You know, even in a normal church message, I've got to listen to my own preaching sometimes more than once to be like, man, that was good, you know? And so, uh, not that I'm like high-fiving myself, but uh, like there's some depth there that I don't know about you. When I was like sitting in church, I needed to hear my pastor say it again. I catch it all. And so that podcast can help all of you. God uses people. Acts chapter 2, I want to show this to you. The Bible says this in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ and this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Look at me for a second. When they heard it. Now I want you to think about God. We sing songs that are kind of like they're nice songs. We'll be like, Holy Spirit, come, you know. But the fact of the matter is the Holy Spirit has been hovering over this property for thousands of years, right? Like before a building was here, before we turned the old Rite Aid into a church, before we started service today, Holy Spirit's been here. And it was the same way on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was there, but what happened? They weren't cut to the heart yet until they heard something. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Huge concept. God has a manner. Now, I'm not saying that God has manners. God has manners. I'm trying to say that he has a way of doing things. He has a, he has a way that he presents himself. There's, there's certain things in scripture when you see a pattern of them, Old Testament and New Testament, you see a theme repeated over and over again. It's trying to make emphasis out of it. And God has a manner. Here's what it is. Write this down. God's manner is he uses people. God uses people. That's his manner. That's the way that he works. God uses people in so much that God himself became Jesus, his, his son in the flesh. Jesus came to this earth, and, and he did it in, in that way on purpose. He did it because he needed to be a man in order to do all that he was called to do for the redemptive work that God had called him to. He had to do that. And, and we think of Jesus Christ, the son of God, right? But actually, what he claimed more often than the son of God is the son of man. Sometimes in scriptures, I get upset when he do it. Like, stop telling them you're the son of man. Tell them you're the son of God. Whoop their butts, Jesus. Get them, you know. But he, constant, he almost gloried in it. I'm the son of man because 
When Jesus was up on that cross, he was 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. You say half man, half God? No, 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 100%, 100%. Figure that one out, math major, but that's exactly who he was when he was up there. And God uses people. That's his manner. The most important thing, if you really think about it, that can happen in your life is your salvation. It's the moment you accept Christ, right? The the moment Jesus comes into your world. Now, think about this for a second critically. Jesus goes uh, into the world. He lives a sinless life. He's tortured. He's sacrificed on the cross. You know, he lays down his life, raises from the dead, 40 more days sowing into the disciples, raises up to heaven, right? The hard work of salvation has already been done. And yet at the same time, have you ever thought of this? He commits the most important work, which is people hearing it, to you. Like this is salvation, the most important thing that God is going on. And the knowing about it job is on you. The Bible says it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, that that if we're going to get this salvation thing out, we all have a part to play. Are you trekking with me? Say amen. Let me show it for you. Uh, You're a deep thinking church. It's in Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him um, whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone, there it is, somebody preaching? They've got to have a person. God uses people. They've got to have a person come in onto the stage and be able to set the stage for salvation in people's lives. We pray, I think, uh, yeah, we sing kind of weird songs sometimes. We even pray sometimes goofier prayers. We, we, we get into prayer circles, and, and people start saying Father God on repeat. Have you ever noticed that? And, and the, the hand starts with Father God in the name of Jesus, holy God. God, I thank you for this day. Day's the next thing because we got nothing on the list. God, and then God, I thank you that you get blessed us with this day, that you blessed us with this day indeed. And we start praying things, and we just pull them out of our pocket because it sounds good. And here's one of the things. Lord, send your spirits. I went to a school, and man, I thank God for my Bible school. I learned so much there. But I got to tell you, oftentimes I've been in way too many prayer meetings where they're, oh, God, send your spirit. You know what Isaiah prayed in the Old Testament? Here am I, Lord. Send me. That's Old Testament. But, but you see the contrast? We're waiting for God to move. And the fact of the matter is God moved. Now it's your move. What are you going to do about it? You have a part to play. Say amen, somebody. So if we think about that day of Pentecost, we just read in Acts chapter 2, think about that. The Holy Spirit is there, he's active, and he didn't do anything until Peter got up and began to preach. Nobody got saved until a guy came up and opened his mouth. Can I put it this way? If you don't go, God ain't going either. Like I just said, he's there, right? But like, you're going to bring the message of Jesus into somebody's life or you're not. But listen, it's going to be carried by a man. God chose to partner with mankind. You know, people say every once in a while, oh, Pastor Joe, you know, I found the Lord. They'll be like, well, when did you find? Well, I found the Lord when I was young. And they start talking like, in reality, you didn't find him. He found you. It took somebody that their life was changed by Jesus, and whether they were some big preacher or whether they were just a normal person who loved God, and and they took the initiative to step into your life, and they brought that message to you, but you weren't looking for Jesus. The Bible makes it clear in Romans that nobody was looking for God. 
But somebody came into your life, and that's what changed everything. They knocked on the door of your life. And whether it was a process to get you to the spot of decision or whether it was an event, a moment, you accepted Christ, I'm telling you, it involves somebody in the process. You didn't just come up with it. So the Spirit of God works in people, and we have precedent for that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. <clears throat> I think about in the Old Testament, David and Goliath. Uh, if you didn't grow up with a Christian heritage, uh, I didn't hear a lot about this story when I was growing up, but it is a seminal story of the New Testament and actually has so much to do with even in times that's tied into it. But the idea is this, that, is that Goliath, who was a giant... And depending on how you measure a cubit length, with the cubits from the end of your uh, middle finger to your elbow, he was in between 10 feet and 13 feet tall. The Bible calls him a giant. The Bible says that there were giants in those days. And the Philistines get on to a plot of land to confront the children of Israel, the people of God. And Goliath goes out there, and the way that they would try to win the battle is they would send one of their tough guys, and they would want another tough guy, preferably the king, to come out and fight. And really, whoever won that battle won the whole war. And in some ways, you can see the merit of that because it spares a lot of blood. But in another way, if you've got a big old giant dude like that, and all he's doing is, is casting shade on you and talking smack about your people... He's intimidating everyone, and, and, and here's what happened. In Israel, it made all those guys shut down. Goliath was a big talker. Here's what I've learned, and guys, you know this. You don't have to watch the guy in the room who's running his mouth about you. I'll kick your butt. You don't have to watch that guy. Watch out for the quiet guy in the corner that's just eyeing you. Any dudes in the house know what I'm talking about? Come on, boy named Sue, the mud, the blood, and the... I'm just, I'm just trying to tell you, it's not the guy that's piping off you need to worry about. It's the quiet dude. And so what is Goliath doing? He doesn't want to fight. The devil doesn't want to fight. He wants to wear you down, make your inhibitions fall, and he wants to make you afraid, and he wants to slip in and win through fear. He wants you just to hand everything over to him. And that's what Goliath is doing. He's a big old bully, and he's standing up every morning and every evening for 40 days. 40 is the number of testing in the Bible. And he is trying to test the leader of Israel, Saul. Well, Saul was a wuss. I wanted to say it more country than that, but I'm in church. Saul was a wuss, and he wouldn't go out there and fight Goliath. And so I have a question for you. Do you not think that God, in his great power, who created the world, could not have sent down one little lightning bolt and zapped Goliath and just killed him dead? Answer, yes, right? I mean, it would take just a mild sneeze from the throne room of God to knock Goliath and maybe the whole country off the map of the world. They'd be in space just flying away. It would take nothing for God to defeat him. And yet, why didn't God shut him up? In my holy imagination, I imagine that the prayer team, the intercessors of Israel were saying, oh God, in the name, we pray that you would shut up Goliath, shut up, shut up, shut up, like shut him up, Lord, shut up, shut the mouth. Of... And I'm sure they were having a good old time in prayer, but yet God did not shut him up. I'm going somewhere with this. So after 40 days of testing, and by the way, that was God respecting Saul, giving him the opportunity to be the king of his country, stand up and show some backbone, and he failed the test. A young boy comes onto the battlefield named David. Now, David was there checking on his brothers, but when he sees what's going on, 
it affects him deeply. He gets angry, and here's his disposition. We got to do something. Like, like somebody's got to do something. Somebody ought to rise up and, and, and shut this guy up. Somebody's got to do something. And he's got this, this disposition that something has to be done. Now, here's what I know. He has that feeling because he can do something about it. When you can't do something about an issue that you see, people typically, like the children of Israel, they don't think that they can do anything about it, therefore they can't. So they're wilting and they're shying away and they don't want anything to do with the problem. David sees it, and I would even argue that any Jew that has a covenant with God that was halfway right with the Lord could have done exactly what David did. David looks and surveys the scene and he says, somebody's got to do something. What I've learned is this, write this down, very profound. When you have that thing rise up in your heart, it's actually the first move of the Holy Spirit. Here's what it sounds like. Somebody ought to do something. Somebody ought to make a difference here. This cannot be. This cannot go on. Somebody ought to do something. When you experience that, that is the Holy Spirit moving on your heart. So when you go back to new kids and you're going to pick up your kids and you see the teachers and you see Kai's back there serving right now and they're holding like three babies and they're smiling at you, but really you know like this has been a lot and there's 145 babies back there screaming in their face and you're like, man, they need more help back there. Somebody ought to do something. Oh, that's God's call on your life. That's God speaking to you. How about when our neighbors next door have a big old show and you're like, well, I know they got a show, so I'm going to stay home. And, and, and even when you come, you're like, oh, it's so busy. And you've got, uh, you've got the guys out there and they're telling us where we got to park. And this is all so, this is, this is disorganized. Somebody ought to do something. Whoa, God's call is on you, friend. You need to rise up. You have a ministry. Quiet in this church all of a sudden. You see, uh, you think that you're a critic of the church. This is the biggest critic of the church. I know our problems. I'm waiting for somebody to just get their catcher's mitt out and say, all right, let's do something about this thing. And so I've found that you will see the thing that God is calling you to. It's not distant. Typically, the thing God's calling you to is the thing that makes you upset the most. It's the thing that God has a call for you. 18 years ago, how in the world? 18 years ago, last or this next month, uh, I was a senior in high school. I was student body president, and I was in charge of the team of people that was putting on our homecoming festivities, in which that meant uh, some of the things that were happening during the game and the crowning of the king and queen, etc., and some of the floats that they were doing, the organization for that, and then organization for a dance that was going to be the next day on Saturday. But I was raised in a small town. Uh, our population was under 1,000 at this point. And uh, we had a history in our small town of people going out to the woods, going out to the orchards, and uh, sometimes to the cornfields. I'm, I'm telling you, I was country's cornbread, everybody. And they'd go out and party. And they'd drink and be wild. We had a huge issue with underage pregnancy in our small town. And we actually had a young lady that was murdered in our small town. In fact, Investigation Discovery did a whole episode on it. it took 20 years to find the killers. But the, the tall and short of it was this. I had rededicated my life to Christ earlier that summer. This is now October of 2004. And I'm feeling like 
this pressure on me, like I'm doing all this homecoming stuff, but the result of it is everybody goes and acts buck wild, and nine months later, we have a whole bunch of people that can't live out like any kind of plans they had before, not that we don't celebrate life, everybody, but like we have a whole bunch of issues going on with people getting hurt, we have people that are ODing in our town, and, and I, I'm feeling like somebody ought to do something about it. I have this idea, and I went and I pitched it to my youth pastor and some of the leaders at church, and I said, I want to do an overnighter, and here's what it's going to look like. I want to go from Friday night after the game, take them to the church, have a concert, and then go to Star Theater before it was gross, and then I want to go uh, roller skating, and then I want to go and go bowling, and then I want to go back to the church and, and, and have breakfast and then dismiss them, and the idea is they're going to be so tired that they won't be able to go out after homecoming. So what's the result? I'll make a long story short. Two-thirds of a secular high school in my small town came out, turned out for this overnight event. And just like clockwork, we did all those events. When they got dismissed after breakfast on Saturday morning, they all crashed, fell asleep. Some of the women, uh, young ladies, they missed their hair appointments that they were getting for homecoming dance. I was like, yes. And, and they showed up, and they got pictures, and they had a good time. They were alert and awake enough for it. But then afterwards, they were too exhausted. And some of those guys that were planning to sell and make money off from all of that craziness, they ended up losing out on that night and getting caught for that matter because we made a plan. Now, that was awesome. And I felt that somebody ought to do something, and we did. But here's, here's the net result of that, and I didn't see it coming a mile away. That next Wednesday, in a town of 1,000 people, we had 104 first-time visitors in our youth ministry, making our youth ministry 300 young people, and 69 of them gave their lives to Christ that night. Somebody ought to do something! And that someone was me. And that somebody is you. Say amen, somebody. When the Holy Spirit works on us, it's not enough just to see problems. You're not the great investigator. You're not the Sherlock Holmes anointing. We need you to help be a solution to all of it. Now, let me read for you what happened in David and Goliath. 1 Samuel 17. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Oh, that feels good, doesn't it? It's not the Lord's going to get you. The Lord, it's none of the, it's the Lord's going to deliver you into my hand. He didn't say, the Lord's going to smite you down. I've been praying for God to get you. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't pray anything like that. He said, Lord's going to deliver you into my hand. I have a part to play in all of this. David knew better. He knew the manner of God, the fact that God uses people. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and... I will strike you down and cut off your head. I like David's smack talk better than Goliath. Goliath's going for 40 days, and apparently he must have just been like, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, and they're all so afraid. David puts a time stamp on it. Yeah, it's going to be today. Today you're dying. I love that about David because he's not waiting for God to show up. He's like, God showed up. Here I am, Lord. Let's, let's do something in all of this. And then he finishes up verse 47. He says, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Huge deal. We read over things like this. In Israel. What is he saying? If God is just for Israel, he's over here. And he's for you. That's great. But it's kind of like, rah, rah, you guys got this. But if God is 
in Israel, it's completely different. It means that I have a part to play in all of this because God is on the inside of me, and so let's go. I'm cutting your head off, buddy. You don't talk that way about my God and my country. Can I hear an amen, church? That's what God is trying to work out. And so David knew that. Let me read on. He says that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, true, but he will give you into our hand. God uses people. That is his manner. Now, when you walked in, you probably thought, what in the world is my church doing putting M&Ms on every single seat? And you may have stole M&Ms off from the seat next to you, thinking that would change the way we do communion around here. no. God has a manner, and the next thing I want to talk to you about is God's mystery. Ephesians chapter 3, if you would. The Apostle Paul reveals a mystery, and it's found in Ephesians chapter 3. It's this magnificent plan, a new work of God. And in the New Testament, it is greater in power, greater in understanding, greater in reach than anything that we've seen before. In the Old Testament. This is, this is a new program that God has for his people. And if we don't understand this mystery, you will never be the vessel that God has called you to be. You will breeze over it, and you will think that it's optional. You'll, you'll, you'll think that it's, it's not as powerful and mighty as God has uh, for all of this. And so it is a mystery. He works through church. Church. Jesus died to build something. It was the church. Church isn't optional for a Christian. A Christian without a church home is an orphan. You gotta have a home. I mean, you gotta have community, everybody. It's you need it in your life. Now, for as important as it is, none of the Old Testament prophets knew anything about it. Isaiah, he had incredible prophecies, but he never prophesied about the church. Jeremiah, incredible prophet of God, used to God, forecasted future events, never knew about the church. Uh, uh, David, who knew a lot about end times, about how things were going to wrap up, he saw that but missed the church age in it all, and it was a huge mystery. The 12 disciples, while Jesus was with them, had no idea that the church was coming. He said, Pastor, that's too far. These guys are the church leaders that we read about in the New Testament. No, I'm telling you, they had no idea. In fact, after Jesus rose from the dead, after 40 days, he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, right? He spent 40 days with them. He's telling them to go wait in the upper room for the Holy Spirit. He's getting ready to ascend to heaven. And they're they're asking about what? The church? Okay, Jesus, you've been talking about the church for a while. Now are you going to explain the church? What, what does the church look like? You know, what, How do we do a building program, Jesus, if you could break this down? No, what are the disciples asking about? Is it now that you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? They were not even looking for this. It was a complete mystery to them. They had no idea that it was coming. But God had this program. And throughout all of his ministry, he's holding it in his back pocket, getting ready to unleash it on the world. Wow. So, after Pentecost, Jesus is in heaven, of course. The church starts on the day of Pentecost. And what he's trying to do, Jesus is trying to raise up somebody who can help explain this mystery to the rest of the body of Christ, to the Jewish people, really be able to articulate the message well. And so God has two things that he's looking for, the first of which is this. God wants to find a guy 
who is a scholar of the highest order, a well-learned person who can also articulate the Old Testament law and the law of Moses brilliantly, okay? God's looking for that guy. And for as wonderful as they were, the 12 apostles were not scholars. The Bible says that they were from my hometown. It says that they were ignorant and unlearned men, but that they had been with God. And that's exactly how they were. Peter, in fact, later in the epistles, he says, yeah, I've heard about Paul. He says things that are hard to understand. (laughs) And so the apostles were wonderful, and and God built a lot through the apostles. I'm not casting any shade on them, but God wants to get somebody who's got the smarts to be able to teach this. But God has another thing that he's looking for. Not only a scholar of the highest order, God's looking for a guy that hates his guts, that hates Jesus' guts, that can't stand the message of Jesus. And... God found it in a man named Saul of Tarsus. He both was a scholar of the highest order, and he hated Jesus' guts. Okay, Saul persecuted Christians. He was killing them. He had the right to imprison them or execute them on the spot, and God intercedes in Saul's life, knocks him on his fanny, by the way, and actually gets Saul to go reach another person because man has to be involved in salvation. Angels, Jesus, none of them can preach about Jesus. Did you know that? That that angels can't preach about Jesus. If angels could preach about Jesus, why in the world are they not hovering over Africa right now and explaining it in detail? He is committed to us, the ministry of reconciliation. And so God sends Saul to a man named uh, uh, Ananias, and he's able to uh, explain the plan of salvation. Saul gets saved. He becomes Paul. God changes his name because he was so rough in his former life. And, and, And Saul, Paul now spends a little bit of time with the 12 disciples, but not very long. God takes him out and begins to minister to him about the mystery. This is what it says, Ephesians 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, he says that the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Now, I can't go into depth on this typical Pastor Joe style. I want to. But if you like extra homework, you should read 2 Corinthians 12 and Galatians chapter 1. Paul did not learn this mystery from the apostles. Like I said, they didn't know. When Paul went off into the wilderness... The Bible says clearly that he was elevated to the third heaven and that God himself, through Jesus, gave him by revelation the mystery of the church and showed it to him and tied it in. So the combination of this revelation that God gave him about the church and his scholarly discourses about the Old Testament made everything linked together perfectly. It made him the ideal person to bring this out. Ephesians 3, now verse 4. He says, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So Abraham, uh, Isaiah, none of these guys knew anything about it. God hid it because the church, this mystery, was such a great idea. God does this. He'll hide things, not not because he doesn't want you to have full disclosure. He wants you to know as much as you possibly can, but he knows this. If you know, Satan knows, and it becomes an incredible liability. Think about when Herod found out about Jesus' birth, that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. 
that caused incredible, incredible disruptions in that particular era. People suffered because of it. And so God knows that he can't be hurt, but Satan is content to make you hurt on his behalf. And so when we know too much, he can exploit the plans of God. Okay, I'm going someplace. That's why the Bible says that the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. Every once in a while, think of it like you're in a dark room and you have a flashlight and you're only able to see one step in front of you. That's okay. Every once in a while, God will take that flashlight and go, "Woo! look at that. And he goes right back to your feet. It never stays out there. That's why those of you that are, are, are thrilled with end times, and listen, I'm a, I'm a guy that's very interested in that. I believe in the, in the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, but you can't gaze at that. The Bible says, occupy until he comes. You don't know for sure. And so what you have to do is, back to just everyday life, just take the step that's in front of you, trusting God for that step. And the steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. He gives you his plan on a need-to-know basis. He's not going to give you the whole thing up front. If you have to know and understand the whole thing before you can take a step, you, my friend, will never be used by God. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to trust him. Put your life in his hands in trust and take that step of faith that he called you to. Can I hear an amen, church? Now, God does it this way to hold it back, to hide it from the enemy. Think of it like a secret agent. No secret agent is going to get the whole story, the whole plot of everything. They're going to know what their job is. So imagine for a second that a secret agent gets uh, kidnapped by the enemy and they try to torture him to bring out the information. If he doesn't know about all the working parts, if he doesn't know the prevailing narrative of how this whole thing is going to happen, if he just knows his bit, you can do what you want to that guy, but you're not going to have the whole thing fall apart. And God works that way. And so because... The devil doesn't see the whole plan of God. What does he do? He bungles it up all the time. He winds up, ironically, actually helping the plan of God move forward. The devil gets embarrassed. You know, it's got to be hard to be the devil. I think about in the Old Testament, the story of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard of it? We lived it in Michigan. (laughs) Hello. Um, Nebuchadnezzar. You're welcome. Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament sets up this statute, and, and he says, hey, this is a statute, and, and whenever this worship music plays, you all need to bow down and worship this idol that I created. And so he's getting ready to have this, this, this sham of a worship service back, and they can tell everybody, well, we bowed, you better bow. You hear it, everybody bow towards the area. We know where this idol is. That's what we're going to do. We now worship idol. Absolutely inspired by Satan absolutely demonic, right? There are three Jewish boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're not bowing no matter what the governor says. And, and they, they play their little music, and everybody bows down, and, and, and they're looking like, bow down, bow, stupid, bow, he's going to kill you. And here was the threat. If you don't bow, you'll burn. If you don't bow to the idol, What Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon, said is, I'm going to put you in a burning, fiery furnace. Well, they don't bow. And so out of everybody, you can picture, you know, the whole sea of people, everybody bows, and there's three dudes standing up. Well, they're the ones that got arrested, taken to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knew these guys. 
he actually liked them. But being so conceited and narcissistic and demonically inspired, he's forcing them like, guys, you better do this. Well, the whole thing was you need to do it the first time it happens. They already should have been sentenced. So he's trying to save face himself. It just shows you how desperate the enemy actually is. You better do it, wearing you down by fear. The boys say, well, we're not going to do it. You can burn us or not. Well, Nebuchadnezzar gets furious because these guys are putting egg on his face. And so he gets so hot-headed and angry. He says, you light up that furnace like 10 times hotter than it's ever been. I just want an inferno. I just want to burn them. Now think about that. He's losing his cool. If you want to make these guys suffer, let's lower the temperature inside the fiery furnace and have a barbecue. <laughs> Burning fire. Fur- in fact, here's what happened. The guys that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, they died because of the heat. It was stupid that he did that. And you're going to do stupid things when you lose your cool, too, by the way. So, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get thrown in, and they don't die. The Bible really shows us a Christophany. What is that? The pre-incarnate Jesus Christ is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. He delivers the three Hebrew boys. They walk out. Nebuchadnezzar gets born again. His leaders were a bunch of yes men. I'm convinced they get born again no matter what. I'm saying born again is a hyperbole. But they all begin to become followers of the God of Israel. And what happens? The whole plan of Satan was that all these people who are in leadership would be forced to bow to the idol, and that would be the story that goes back to their neighboring villages. Instead, what are they talking about when they go back? Boy, the devil regrets this. They all go back and say, oh, yeah, the God of Israel, he rescues his followers. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's following God now. And I'm telling you right now, I don't know about that statue, what was going to happen to it, but I'm following God now. Like, we all part of Israel. We all Jewish now. You know, like, that's what the story went back. The devil overplayed his hand. Do you see it? He always tries to bungle it up uh, and and, and it falls falls apart. It it blows up in his face. Write this down. Huge. Mystery is God's way of turning something that the devil does, turning it for his own glory. Devil's trying to do something and what the devil doesn't know could fill a book, both literally and spiritually, and it blows up in his face. What does it look like in the New Testament? That's the cross. The Bible says that if the rulers of that day would have known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. What is that saying? There must have been a meeting in hell after the resurrection. And they're doing a little review. Like, how did we do? What's right, wrong, missing, confused? How did our plan? And somebody had to have said, we never should have incited that mob to say crucify him. We never should have demonically possessed those men to nail his hands to the cross. Why? Because when Jesus Christ emptied out that grave, he emptied out the grave of every follower of him from that moment until his soon coming return. Do you see how it blows up in his face? Wow. That is the power of mystery. Now, i got to read this to you. Ephesians 3 and verse 6. The mystery is that Comstock Park High School, that Granville, <laughs> that those hillbillies up in the north country that live on Croton, that nobody knows they're living there, but they's living there. The Gentiles, and that's probably you. You're likely not a Jew. The Gentiles are now what? 
fellow heirs, members of a body, body, body. You'll hear about that in a second. Partakers of the promise. How? Through the gospel. Oh, wait a second. They thought, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because it was all of God's work was done through one people. It continues on verse 9. To bring to light for everyone what the plan of this mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Wow, that's the mystery. It is a church, a place of power, a community that comes together. And what does it have? Authority over the enemy. It has power. It's empowered. And there's something about when we get together in this room that makes all of hell shudder. Make no bones about it. All those shutdowns were an attack on Jesus, his followers, his church, and everything else was collateral damage. It is to stop the saints, to wear down who we are. Who are we? We're the empowered people of God. And when we come together, we can make a difference like this world has never seen before. This is now going from being a small group of people called the Jews to, as it says in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the good news to every creature. This is going big time. We're taking this thing public, and God's work is now not just in one group of people. We're making it so all groups of people can be grafted into this great thing called the church, and there's room for you. Can I hear an amen, church? I got to move on. Now, the Apostle Paul prays a spirit-inspired prayer for the might of God to work through us. This is what it says in Ephesians 3. I'm going to start reading verse 14. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might. To be strengthened with might. Say it with me. Strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Write it down. Number three, we talked about God's manner. We talked about the mystery. Number three, the might of God is his ability in us to get the job done, to take care of it. Let's lick this thing. Let's let's take care of business. God has a manner, a mystery, and his might. It's football season, and I was talking with Pastor Brian about football. And Pastor Brian, honestly, he's very modest in many ways. He was a great athlete, likely would be a great athlete if he was on any team today. But uh, at Granville High School, he had a full ride scholarship, maybe you didn't know this, to play baseball at Finley College in Ohio, which, uh, you know, Ohio's gross, but I mean, like, as far as having a, a full ride scholarship, that tells you a lot about his ability, yeah? And he was MVP on that team, MVP on, I think, lacrosse and rugby. He was team captain in football. He was MVP at Granville High School. I don't know if you knew this, but they're doing all right, everybody. And so he was a big football guy. But when he was a sophomore, because his brothers played football before, I think that they had a little bit of favor on him, and rightly so, but they brought him up as a sophomore onto the varsity team, and he weighed 140 pounds. Now, I have you know I weigh at least 140 pounds today. I don't know what the big deal about that in the story, but he weighed 140 pounds soaking wet. And uh, he was telling me about this, that he was facing off with another guy, and, and they were getting kind of whooped that night, and so he went helmet to helmet. He went face mask to face mask, and he looked at the guy, and he says, I'm going to kill you. 
and they ran the plane. You know what happened? That guy killed him because <laughs> he was a pipsqueak. And so Pastor Brian, he goes and, and he talks to the coach, and they had a great coach at that time, have a great coaching program as far as I know. And the coach did more than get the guys fired up. Let's get fired up. Let's go. You know, I mean, he did more than that. It's important to get some inspiration. And by the way, if all the Holy Spirit does in your life is get you excited, but he doesn't, he doesn't unveil how you can get things done, you're going to be useless. That's why people think that our persuasion is a little nuts sometimes. Anyway, so Pastor Brian goes to that weight room, and he starts working out, working his legs. Everybody leaves, and he's still working out. He goes home, and he's doing push-ups like crazy. At this point, he's dating my sister. I hate his guts at this moment in the story, by the way. But all I'm hearing is about, oh, how healthy Brian. Oh, Brian. You see how healthy Brian. He's got a little shake thing with a little ball in it. He's drinking protein. He only eats peanut butter sandwiches and chicken breasts. You know, just Brian's eating. Great, Naya. Awesome. Does he have any skills as a husband? Another sermon. Okay, so he's working out. He's doing all this stuff. Finally, he's senior year. He goes helmet to helmet, face mask to face mask. And he looks at the guy. He doesn't even say, I'm going to kill you. You know why? He just does it. He just kills him. There's one thing where you're inspired and you're excited. There's another thing. Even when you have a plan, there's a whole other level when you can actually pull it off. I don't know about you, but I like having the ability. Amen, somebody? That's what God wants to do in you. It's not just to give you excited. And God wants you to get charged up. It's not just insight. It's not knowing what to do. It's giving you the ability to get things done, get them accomplished in your life. Do you see his goodness? His manner is that he uses people. That's you and I. Wow. The mystery. He puts you in a place of power. And in that place of power, the church, you're empowered and you can do things that you could never do even on your own. But on your own. He empowers you, and that is his might. He puts ability into your spirit. i got to move on. That chapter ends in Ephesians 3 in verse 20. One of the most seminal prayers. It, for those of you that like extra homework, you, you wait for me to say it. Ephesians chapter 3, really the whole chapter, but specifically verse 14 to verse 21, the end of the chapter, is a prayer that Paul prays. Pray it. Don't pray it like vain repetition. I'm not saying that, but personalize it and pray it over your life. That prayer ends like this. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think, according to the power that he works in us, to him be glory in this church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Guys, that whole prayer starts with talking about the love of God. It then talks about God wanting to do exceedingly and abundantly and above all you could ever ask or think. Another translation says, ask, think, or even imagine according to the power that works in you. Next week, our church is going to be starting something we've never done before. I'm excited about it. It's a spiritual growth campaign. You say, what in the world is that? It's more than a series. It's going to be six weeks of teaching. It's coupled with a book that we're going to be handing out to you as you leave. And this is all called Made for More. Go ahead and throw up that slide, guys. Made for More starts next week. It was 40 days, but the author of this book added two more lessons onto it. You're welcome. So it's going to be a good even number of six weeks, 42 days. And it's all about God's purpose being worked out in your life. 
what makes it a spiritual growth campaign versus being just a normal series. Well, we will be talking about not exactly uh, like I'm not I'm not preaching any of his messages out of this book. It's going to be messages around made for more. And this, by the way, is Rick Warren's uh, signature purpose-driven life. We're giving it to all of you at no cost. The partners of New Chapel paid for this for you because they believe in you. And so this book is free on your way out. You can see those those uh, tables with books on them. Grab that. But this is six weeks. There is a scripture to memorize every single week. And we put it in there to make it easy on you. We put stickers of scriptures to memorize. There is actually at the beginning of every chapter a QR code that you're able. And by the way, for if you're old, QR is quick response. You're welcome. A quick response code. You can get your camera out, hit that, and watch a short teaching that's all about the chapter that you're reading. So it's not only are we talking about it six weeks on the weekend, but there is a daily chapter for you to read. He says this, and I'm asking you to do it on your honor. We're not going to start reading until next Sunday. Take the book today, but next Sunday is when we start. Don't go ahead. Don't read this like it's a novel. Don't get through this. That's not really the goal. And if you're like me, I've messed up every Bible reading plan I've ever started. Don't condemn yourself if you miss a day or more. Just jump back in on the day that everybody else is. Don't worry. Don't condemn. If you can make it up, great. If you never get there until the next time you go through it, that's fine too. Here's what's most important, that this body goes on a journey together. Because here's what I know. It's that you are made for more. That God has a plan for you. And I can preach about a good God or for the next six weeks I can show you a good God that wants to work out his goodness in your life, in your family's life. And I believe this. We'll look back and we'll say that was a tipping point for this church. Things changed after Made for More. We came alive as a church at the season of Made for More. You don't want to miss this. Next week and for the six weeks after, I'm asking, this is a big ask, don't miss one Sunday don't miss. Invite people along with you. We'll get more books if we have to. We've got oodles of them. Every adult gets one of these and your kids. Every family unit should grab at least one devotional. But we have a book for every single adult that's here today. Now, to get ready for this spiritual growth campaign, this Wednesday I'm calling for a prayer meeting. Throw up that slide, guys. Our prayer meeting is going to be on Wednesday. It's going to start at 6.30. Well, actually, that's when our doors are going to open. And then at 7 o'clock, we're going to start. If you've never been to a prayer meeting at New Chapel, another church might call this a night of worship. Okay? So there's a lot of worship music. There's a lot of focused prayer. And it's a time for all of us to get spiritually prepared. I mentioned to the GO team earlier last month that if you'd like to fast this week, not only for yourself, but fast for other people, you're welcome to do that. For more information about fasting or anything like that, go to newchapel.com slash made for more. And that's going to be our hub in all of this. I've got articles and videos. I have a digital copy of this book, Purpose Driven Life. You can download it. It's all free. No password protection. Just go download it. And also use it as an opportunity to invite people who are far from God. When you walked in, go ahead and pull this out, everybody. You received this little postcard. Go ahead and pull it out. Hold this in your hand. This is not for you. In fact, you're going to be receiving this in the mail. So if you like these, it's coming. I want you to lose this specific way. Invite somebody. People are just recovering from the last two and a half years. 
they're just surfacing in many ways. And what we need to do is be a church that says, hey, I don't know what that worldly confusion is, but God has a plan. You were made for more. Come sit with me. If you don't know how to share Jesus with them, maybe that's one thing, but you can share your seat at church. And I can do something you might not feel comfortable doing, and that is talking to people about their faith. I'll be doing that for six weeks. We're going to have a baptismal out every single week of this. I want it to be a whole season where the waters of baptism at New Chapel never go dry. You're made for more. Okay, I've got to wrap this up. One last time I want to read for you Ephesians 3. Maybe it'll mean something a little more, and then I'm going to pray for you. It says this in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ever ask or could think or imagine, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Church, say it with me. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for my church. God, I pray that they would realize the goodness of God, that it is shown in your manner, in your mystery, and in the might that you unfold in our hearts. God, I thank you that as people hear this message, if anybody doesn't know you, help me to find them in Jesus' name. Amen. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for another minute. If you came into this room or if you're in the sound of my voice and you don't know God, or your life's not right with God, whatever that means, the Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord means boss. It's you giving up control over your life and giving it to the God that made you. And the Bible says that when you do that, There's a heaven to gain when you die, eternal life. You avoid a Christless hell. But maybe even more than that, more important for your daily life is that eternal life, it doesn't start when you die. It starts the moment that you accept Jesus Christ. So the peace that you're looking for, the hope that you need, it's found in him. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to pray this prayer. All of us, this is an all play. Everybody in the church, pray it with me. Pray, dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross in my place for my sin so I can be forgiven. You raised him from the dead. This I believe. So with my heart and with these words, I confess Jesus Christ is my Lord. I surrender now. Jesus, I call on you. Come into my life. Forgive my sin. Put your spirit within me. I receive all that you have for me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for making all things new. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's give it up for those people that accepted Christ. Proud of you. Lord, bless you and keep you. Make his face shine on you. Be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. As you go, you're made for We hope that you were encouraged and brought closer to God during this message. You can listen to any of our past messages and series either on this podcast or on newchapel.com slash watch. And be sure to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram to stay up to date on everything happening here at New Chapel.